Well, good morning. Well, it's afternoon technically, but <laughs> depends on where in the world you are. Um, so I just thought I'd share. Uh, I've, I've mentioned it in some of the episodes uh, of the podcast this week. I've uh, been taking a lot of courses over the last year. I've mentioned this, right? Working towards um, mindfulness and, and, and treating trauma. Uh, today is day three of what they're calling the Psychedelic Assisted Therapy Global Summit, something to like to that effect. And I mentioned, I think, yesterday that I joined it for day two originally because uh, uh, Basil van der Koltz and Gabor Maté um, but then day three was really awesome today. Uh, who was it today? Let's see here. What do we have? Uh, well, Gabriel Mate, my apologies. Yeah. Uh, so today, Basil, Vanderkoltz, or maybe this is day three. I've lost track. Well, I joined it for one particular day, but I'm into day three now. And I mean, I'm getting a lot of really great insights and material. But the one thing I wanted to share was psychedelic assisted therapy as they plan on implementing it. Okay, I've mentioned uh, MAPS before, the multidisciplinary approach to psychedelics. Um, I've mentioned Rick Doblin before uh, about uh, some other uh, podcasts and some of the interviews. But since they're in their second, third stage trial for MDMA assisted therapy, Rick Doblin is starting to share a little more on what he sees as the future of the market. So long story short, um, the question was, how does he see this work? So the way he sees it is if the FDA approves it and everything's great with the third phase trial, the second of the third phase trial, if they do approve MDMA um, for uh, therapy, they're going to be limited in what they'll prove it at first, which wasn't a surprise. But what was a surprise to me is that Rick Doblin said that he knows that the DEA is not going to reschedule MDMA, which to me is a hypocrisy, because if the th a second, third phase trial shows that it has incredible potential to heal people, doesn't have all of the dangers that they've attributed to it, then how can it remain a Schedule 3 as no medicinal value? But that's neither here nor there. What's really sad is that they're only going to reschedule their patented pill formulation. And even sadder, if they reschedule just that pill, that one MDMA pill that's approved uh, based under their protocol and only used under their protocol. Because, by the way, MAPS, uh, Doblin admits they're going to be a pharmaceutical company. MAPS is going to be a pharmaceutical company. Let that sink in. Which would be fine. Right? I'll get to the reason why I see this as a potential incredible failure and danger. So not only are they not going to reschedule MDMA, I would understand that they don't reschedule it as go, go after her, but they definitely have to reschedule it as having some additional value. You know, I'm going to get to why that's important. Because you can't do this. This is exactly what causes trauma. You tell someone one thing and do the other. It's the attached cry for help or it's, um, it's the loss of hope or it's the, 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 um, uh, the bifurcation of W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, right? The double consciousness. You're telling us that it has medicinal benefit, possible uh, trauma healing, but only if we go through this uh, particular therapist avenue. 
right? So what else did they mention here? Stage three, they're going to be a pharmaceutical company. They're only going to reschedule their particular pill. This is the thing that shocked me the most. Uh, Rick said that they plan on only allowing therapists trained by them to, to assist uh, patients, which is going to make it so hard to access. It's beyond the pale. But worse yet, only those therapists can use the rescheduled drugs. But it gets worse than that because he says, well, you know, trained through them. And he admits that, right, they'd be limited on how many that they can train. But the example he gives is Nalanda University. Now, I invite you to go look up this particular school. It is a Buddhist school. It's named after uh, Nalanda that I talk a lot about. Uh, I'm talking about the... Uh, the Indian uh, University of a thousand years ago. I'm not talking about this oh problematic school. The reason why I mention it, I've mentioned, I've met some of their students, and they're ridiculous. What they learn at this school is beyond the pale ridiculous. It's not just the Western uh, conception of what Buddhism and mindfulness is, which is wrong, 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 wrong. But what they teach is absolutely horrible. It almost seems like they're part of uh, a sect and they're teaching their sect sort of. But I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but they're not even approved school. right? If you get, uh, for example, they have a wildlife therapy program. It's not an approved program. It's You're paying $40,000 a year for a diploma that nobody's going to recognize unless... They believe in the power of crystals. Seriously. So that, to me, is beyond the pale. Because this is day two of the Psychedelic Assisted uh, Summit. Because in day three, almost each and every one of the speakers have mentioned the need for the opposite. We need to have more people access. We need to uh, make sure that we don't increase the cost and the availability. And, and more importantly... This, this, um, what would you call it? Uh, in fact, here's the, the final slam dunk. Rick Doblin's speech is about uh, bringing together psychedelic therapy, healing, hopefully, uh, right? And spirituality. And that's probably why he thought Nalanda would be a good example, but they're the worst. They're an example of a place that doesn't teach the sufficiency that I've mentioned. Because some of the, I mean, actually, it's really great because today they mentioned this, the joke uh, that psychiatrists tend to try to heal people of uh, issues they haven't managed uh, for themselves. And so we, here we see the exact same thing. We see a lot of these therapists, in fact, uh, uh, one of them today, who's gravitated towards this protocol, not because they've seen a tremendous amount of benefit, but because it's become part of their identity. I, I gave, I've given an example of this before, how sometimes people fall down this uh, rabbit hole. I know this young lady um, who was a YouTuber and seriously depressed, lots of problems. And when she uh, was introduced to the psychedelic potential and she actually really saw some, some healing, she went down the rabbit hole completely. She started going on... Uh, mushroom trips and special retreats and you know growing mushrooms at home obsessed about mushrooms everything was about mushrooms 
And then once the placebo wore off, right? Because remember I told you, you can't take, you know, um, a heroic trip and not have something to touch back, a touchstone back to it. If you take your dose and go back to your same life and you change nothing else, you're eventually going to go back to your same malaise, which is what she ran into, right? So what she realized is she had to integrate this. And this is day three. We talk a lot about integration, but they have yet to even mention what integration is. Integration is what I've been talking about, exactly what these practitioners and doctors will talk about, that they themselves struggle to take this off the map, uh, off the mat into everyday life. Yet these people are saying that they can teach this to people. Again, let's follow this back again. They admit, one of these doctors admits that they won't even open up to the potentials of psychedelics. I mean, they see it in other people, that's why they support it, but it hasn't benefited them the way it should because they won't buy in. Many of these doctor practitioners don't buy in or they put the, the potential on the psychedelics instead of the buying in. And now what do I mean by this? A lot of people gave me uh, heck for saying something very similar when it came to cannabis, uh, when it went commercialized. Because a lot of them said, oh, this is a great first step, this is a great first step. So what did I mention here? I said, um, well, I'll just read what I wrote. So I said, his vision of the market post a successful stage three looks like a poor idea to me, right? Less access, increased cost. I argue more criminality as desperate people look for the therapy as they hear about the potential and this protocol of the, the healing, yet they're going to make it less and less accessible. I've seen it myself. If you wanted mushrooms before it became socially acceptable a couple of years ago, you'd have an easier time of finding some than you would today because you'll probably end up with a half dozen people trying to rip you off rather than you know people who really were interested in this. Right? They want to limit the providers, right? but people will continue to use it. I argue use it more. And sadly, like cannabis in Canada, they will actually make this potential protocol worse. Uh, they'll make people worse. Yet none are seeing this. right? I think they're obviously blinded by their echo chambers or maybe even their egos. Because we saw this up here in Canada. Because Health Canada is about to end the medical access program because they said, oh, we got recreational market now, so we don't need it. But the real truth is the reason why cannabis in Canada is completely denatured is because they have never changed the allowed residual chemicals. Because of the way the system has been approved, it's very difficult to get approval for outdoor growth. I don't know if they've changed that, but I don't think they have because the cannabis commercial interests um, marketed uh, uh, the legislation in such a way that they were required to use all these chemicals because of their hands being tied, growing indoors, yada, 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 whatever the reason was. But the reality is, is for, for a, a product that cannot be washed and it's going to be inhaled, not consumed, eaten, they are allowing 
in the range of five to 5,000 times the allowed residual chemicals of, say, for example, the European Union. Now, when I say five to 5,000 times more than the allowed residual in Europe, that's for, say, an apple that can be washed, right? If the European Union were legislating for a product that cannot be washed off, oh my gosh, then we'd be looking at hundreds of thousands of times higher than what should be allowed. Because I myself have experienced it. I actually tried some of this commercial product. I went with a tincture that was a full spectrum, expecting that it'd be a little bit better. Um, but literally, I had a reaction almost immediately from the residual uh, chemicals, right? Because I've seen it before in the gray market. You try a cannabis that has too much uh, fertilizer in it. Um, and you can confirm that by um, uh, actually extracting it. And in, in what I used to do is if you put the flour in the oil, you'd, you'd, get the, uh, you'd get these particulates would turn into what looked like chunks of crystal or salt in the bottom, but neither here nor there. Also, when you smoke flour, you can see the residual. But when you vaporize cannabis concentrates, right, that's impossible to hide it, right? So because of the market being so absolutely toxified with all these residual, residual chemicals, I had to move to a concentrated form of cannabis that the legal market still is yet to even catch up and provide. So... Geez, I would have been thrown in jail like what I predict many of these desperate, desperate patients will experience, right? Because we'll go from literally Rick Dobbin openly admits in this interview that he in the 70s decided to become an underground psychedelic therapist. And like I said today, uh, one of the speakers went on and on for about five to ten minutes of the dangers of these underground therapists, even though, and I laughed when I watched that interview, even though that's how it's been done for decades or centuries, you wouldn't know anything about this if it wasn't for these underground therapists. But from the same mouth, saying that he wanted to become an underground uh, psych psychedelic therapist, now he's literally going to make it nearly impossible to access. Because another example is Canada, right? I see a lot of people talking about being neurodivergent or these different diagnoses they may get. Well, the real sad truth up here in Canada is if you have trauma, which is, like I said, Gabor Maté saying it's incredibly common, all of this psychedelic summit is is uh, revolving around trauma. That's what all of these people with psychedelics are coming for. It's trauma, it's trauma, trauma, trauma. But trauma wasn't even uh, approved or recognized in Canada until 2018. But that was only for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it even took uh, some time after, them, after that for them to admit it isn't just soldiers. And they've added in uh, frontline workers and police. And now they've added in journalists that can be susceptible to this. But the real truth is you have millions of people in the broader population, our Indian people, for example, have the multi-generational trauma, immigrants, these BIPOC that we always talk about. So many of our average citizens could benefit from this protocol. And what's 
even sadder is Rick Doblin mentioned that he would like to see uh, a broader availability for people. And Gabra Mate mentioned it himself. The fact that we need to have for people who aren't like completely broken down, that they may benefit broadly. But based on this little uh, info dump, it seems that we've all had our hopes up for years that this may be the solution to, uh, to this modern malaise. But in reality, it looks like the psychedelic therapy is going to go the way of cannabis. That uh, we're literally going to have to find another medicine. Because uh, in the end, you're going to have a hard time finding something that's actually healing. Right? I mean, it's kind of like mushrooms. You had to be careful where you got them because, first of all, it's unlikely you're going to be dealing with the grower directly. But you want, it's not just the quality of the product, it's also the care. Right? Like if you get some magic mushrooms and they're all bruised and battered, purple, that's not somebody who's taking care of it. But the real truth of it is you get really sick. Because if they're not taking care of you know uh, what they're growing it in or how they, they care for it and clean it off, like never mind um, having a bad trip. Imagine getting something horrible, some sort of disease, when you're already suffering. Right? And that's what we're going to see. I mean, I saw it uh, 30 years ago when it was illegal, but it wasn't uh, really like, um, uh, what, what would you call it? Like, uh, well, people weren't going crazy, over, scared over it, right? Because you could, there were certain areas where you were allowed to go camp and there were, you know, uh, magic mushrooms in the park. And, you know, I mean, they, they wouldn't let you take any out of the park. Uh, but the same can be said now. I mean, their fear, and it's funny because they, you know, some of these conspiracy theorists will talk about how they're afraid, the reason why they, uh, Nixon, even Rick Dobbin said this, he wondered if Rick, uh, if um, Nixon was afraid of psychedelics and scheduled them all and, and, and suppressed all of this studying because of the, uh, the uh, doors of perception, potential uh, doors of perception being uh, flooded open. But we see today... Um, like I said, with a park that there's uh, wild psychedelic mushrooms growing, they don't keep people from going into the park. They don't keep people from consuming the mushrooms. They just keep people from taking them out of the park. right? So even though Rick says that he's worried about... And in fact, oh, that was actually a very cringy uh, point. So I invite you, I don't know if you're going to be able to access the Psychedelic Summit, but he talked about his worry about uh, people abusing the psychedelics. And I'll give you an example that you can watch. If you want to go and find an episode of the Joe Rogan experience with, um, uh, I can't remember if she's a neuroscientist or a psychologist or both. Her name is Anna Lemke. And she wrote a book on the dopamine fix, I believe it's called, or the problem is in her, her, her hormones or whatever she called it. And she has this theory that our problem lies in dopamine and serotonin, the availability and their need and all this. Her theory is problematic uh, because it's, it's an incredible oversimplification. It's hilarious because um, the interviewer even asked uh, Rick Doblin that today about, uh, oh, can we attribute uh, what's going on with the psychedelics? And I've always said that myself and I chuckle. 
because he's like, well, we have to watch that we don't get into this, uh, you know, silly little game where we start to believe that, you know, we can attribute uh, some of these effects to a particular, you know, interaction of chemicals or, you know, right? it's a lot more complicated than that, right? So, like I said, you can watch uh, Anna Lemke and you can see this hubris, ignorance, and even, I argue, malevolence in some of the things she said. So, like uh, Rick Doblin, she said she was worried about people abusing. But Rick never mentioned what he means by abuse, but Anna did. She gave examples of mental illness. These people were, yes, abusing mushrooms or psychedelics, taking it every day for a month was an example she gave, I believe, which I don't believe her. Because if she's a brain scientist, she should understand that after 30 days of mushrooms every day, like, I mean, no, nobody's going to do that. And if they do, it's not from taking the compound. It's not an abuse situation. That's purely mental illness. That's like someone abusing water and you saying, well, it's the water's fault. No, no, because after 30 days, this person will be so deplete of serotonin and they would experience absolutely nothing. I myself have experienced this. I mean, 30 years ago, we didn't know about all the serotonin, the dopamine, and this sort of stuff. So we had to learn ourselves, right? Like LSD, you had to take it, you know, you couldn't take it uh, more than, a, you know, once or twice a week. Mushrooms, same sort of thing. But there was a, an insight as to what's going on because you could actually uh, repeat, but you'd have to double up. But that wasn't the same with, say, uh, phenylphylamines, right? Like you could take, uh, um, like MDMA, uh, you could take it again, but it, it wasn't. Whereas LSD was just, there was nothing, right? If you took it too often, nothing would happen. So when she gives this example of someone abusing for 30 days, you can say rhetoric, but why would you say something like that that shows, I think you're making that up. Because no one would do that. And if someone did take, say, mushrooms every day for 30 days, that person is very seriously mentally ill. There are other issues. Their, their issue is not with addiction. Never mind the fact that she doesn't seem to understand what addiction is, right? Because it's not the compound or the, the thing you're taking. But the final straw for me was Joe Rogan, <laughs> kudos to him, mentions how wrong she is on so many of these things by just mentioning one thing. So when she's talking about abuse, she mentions her concern for microdosing, right? For the same reason she's afraid they're going to abuse it. She mentions Ibogaine. So first of all, Joe even calls her out. It's like, wait a minute. Do you, do you understand what you're talking about? Because you can't abuse Ibogaine. It just by the nature of how it works and the body load, like good luck to you if you can take it more than a couple times in a week. You're a hero. I don't even think it'd be mental illness. I think it would be, you know, someone desperate for some healing and they had no other avenue and nobody really explained it to them. Because Iobogaine is the sort of thing you only take once in a blue moon, if, if more than once. Because some people say it takes 18 hours of an incredible trip and they come out it completely changed on the other side. But what really showed Amanda as failing 
even in her book premise and her profession, is she was talking uh, crack about Ibogaine, but she doesn't even understand what it is. Because Joe Rogan gave it an opportunity to go, oh, okay, sorry, I misspoke her. Because she was asked, well, what about this potential? It's the answer to her question. She is trying to figure out what it is about the dopamine and addiction and what we can do. And Ibogaine does something that would be right up her alley. So the fact that she is a professional, she's written a book, she's done the research and all this stuff, and she never came across the simple simple truth of what ibogaine is and what its function and how it interacts like what it does is it works very similar to the lsd that i mentioned that it acts as like a uh, like a, a ligand it, it, it leaves these uh, receptors wide open but it also has like an anti-abuse um, component to it right that you can't be taking ibogaine and then go take like an opiate don't quote me on this um, it's, it's a little complicated and this is going back probably, I think it was about a year ago that this interview with Amanda Lemke, but the fact that Joe Rogan is like, Whoa, wait a minute here, lady, you do realize what you're saying is total horse bull cocky, right? Because if, if I've brought you on my podcast here as a professional that understands hormones and the brain and all this jazz, but you don't understand. And this is where the critique comes in. Not that she doesn't understand. I begin, but when he explained that there was so much potential in what Ibogaine does, or however you want to explain it, she shut down and even became defensive instead of going, well, what? How, how did I not know that there is this, this organic compound that might actually do exactly what we're talking about, what we're talking about needing it to do, right? So this is the exact same feeling that I had with Rick Doblin today, the the fact that he was so positive about what the potential is for all this stuff, yet when he explains what their roadmap is for the future, it sounds like we're putting psychedelic-assisted therapy behind by at least 20 years. But I don't know. I just thought I'd share that. Um, I guess uh, on a positive note, what else could I share? Um, it seems very much to me uh, that most of this has to do with uh, connection, right? Uh, connection, meaning, uh, value. So everything I've said before seems to apply, right? Uh, Nietzsche uh, in his Zarathustra um, really did westernize the concepts uh, shared in the uh, Upanishads, the Rig Veda, the, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the uh, Yoga Sutras, whatever you want to call um, Right? I mean, geez, I was just reading Carl Jung and Richard Wilhelm. And Richard Wilhelm and Jung both wonder if a lot of this knowledge even predates some of these that we mentioned. Uh, maybe Zoaster. And I mean, I'm sure Zoaster is an archetype of something that came before it. And yet, here we sit. Our disconnection is with spirituality. What is spirituality? I laugh because what began this journey for me was trying to understand why I was having such a hard time with mindfulness and meditation. Uh, it's often called the dark night of the soul. This is a poem by uh, St. John of the Cross. I love St. John of the Cross now that I've learned about him. He's actually a contemplative. 
what that means is his particular order, uh, discaled, uh, discaled uh, Carmelites, and what it just means is they're they're um, barefoot, barefoot Carmelites. Uh, but what I love about it is they live a life of constant, ceaseless prayer, which is sati sampajanya. That's constant, ceaseless awareness of the truths of impermanence, of uh, you are not the concept of self that you uh, perceive, and more importantly, the source of suffering is the same attachment uh, to the belief in self and the belief in permanence. You need to bring that truth, sati, remember this truth, and, and apply it to all of life's daily activities. That's sampajana, clear uh, awareness, uh, clear light insight, as the Tibetans uh, like to translate it. Right? That's what we're here. So when we realize that these psychedelics allow us to let down this thin veil of consciousness, as, as Huxley said, and see that we're not the center of the universe, we're not au bas du ciel, as I say in French, it's the base of the sky, this idea that we're the hinge pin or the pivot of the universe. That's hubris, that's egotism. And what is egotism? Like Carl Jung said, and even Rick Doblin alluded to Jung, it's this idea of the self and the other. But more importantly, the differentiation between the I and the self. And, and, I, and I laugh because when I went and researched this dark night of the soul that everyone talks about, in the original uh, Spanish, it would be better translated as the, the obscure night of the soul. I love that, the obscure night of the soul, because it's a better translation, because it's really not dark. It's obscure. It's when you lose your faith, you have a sense of doubt, and you need that reassurance. Obscure in the sense that it doesn't happen often. Obscure in the sense that you feel discombobulated. But what's incredible about this truth is within this obscure night of the soul is this lesson that this is normal, right? This is trauma healing. Because as you uncover your traumas, it becomes troublesome, problematic. And as you work through them, it gets a little easier. But the next thing that comes up, trust me, is only going to get worse. It's this disassociation. It's, it's a coping mechanism because some of these things you're just not able to handle. And again, we put too much weight on the psychedelics here as these practitioners because they will say that this is what psychedelics allow. It allows people to to sit with their pain, with their challenges, with their trauma. And instead of it causing incredible torment and suffering to the point where they're not able to deal with it, or it's a big thing about narrative theory, right? So you're going to have to go and, and sit with your trauma and understand where it comes from so that you can understand all of this trauma-informed adaptation that can't, tends to impinge on your everyday life. It's not the original trauma. It's your reactions that have evolved and developed because of that original trauma, and more importantly, how you perceived it and how you've integrated it and carried it forward, right? So we have these doctors who understand that it's this connection, what we call upekka, upeksha in Sanskrit, equanimity, right? It's this understanding that you are you, but only because you're part of a greater system, a greater whole of this atma, in Sanskrit, um, shakti, this universal being, uh, 
energy that we connect to, right? Jung's Zelle, the collective unconscious, uh, which William James, radical empiricism, this extrasensory consciousness that we tap into. But you don't have to get into the alchemical uh, silliness of it when you understand that the self is a relationship with, with the I, your conception of who you are, constantly evolving, versus your true self, right, which is a combination of your experience, your imagination, your cognition, and the uncovered parts of the self, often called the shadow. But it's this integration of the, the I and the self, right, uncovering your true self, that's called individuation. But it's in this active imagination, casino practice in Buddhism, um, psychedelic experience, um, holographic breathing, holotropic, I keep doing that, that's funny. <laughs> uh, holotropic breathing, yeah. Um, the real problem here is that we don't realize that it's the actual experience. Right? The psychedelic just shaves away some of the hindrance. But that can be done with, and he proved it, because he explained how they tested their therapies. So their placebo was therapy alone. Ooh, darn. That kind of screws things a bit, right? But if the placebo is therapy alone and they showed incredible benefit, one-third of their patients with therapy alone no longer diagnosed as PTSD. That shows it works, right? So I argue that if there is a portion that need that, it's no different than learning mindfulness. And what's funny is he said this another doctor has been waiting for mindfulness to become more accepted before he can add psychedelics to the therapy. I argue he's waited too long because the concept of mindfulness has been denatured by the West and commercialism, where it is a joke at this point, it seems. And even in our circles, uh, mine and some of my friends, it's even considered a dirty word at this point because most people just tune out when they hear that word. Right? But it's the healing protocol, the potential that we want to look to. So I argue they're just looking for a shortcut, like most of the patients, but there is no shortcut. If one-third of your patients heal with therapy, another one-third heal with your psychedelics, and then one-third, wait a minute, did you actually try to give a little more intensive therapy to those patients that still needed the psychedelics? No, no, because we tried one protocol for therapy. It only helped one-third of the patients. This goes back to what I've said. These therapists, even um, Basil van der Kolt, is starting to evolve. Because when he wrote his book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, you read in it that these therapists, he was all in on EMDR, um, eye movement, uh, deprogramming, and I, don't, I can't remember what the... The letters stand for off the top of my head right now. But he was all in with that. Why? Because it was tested. And then yesterday or today's um, seminar, he mentioned that they're testing other stuff. Uh, I can't remember exactly what he said. Uh, some of the other stuff here. Bottom of the page. One of the bottom of the pages here. Mm.
No, maybe not. But he mentioned things like, um, well, he didn't mention enough things, just yoga and a couple other things, right? Uh, oh, yes, it was uh, the breathing, breath work, uh, yoga, uh, and mindfulness or meditation. I mean, there's so many more things, right? There's the sweat lodges that Gabor Mate mentioned, um, fasting, vision quests. Um, and I mean, to lump mindfulness in, to one group of things, even meditation. Uh, I just mentioned, right, uh, contemplation to uh, a Zoroastrian is not going to be the same as a Vedantin. It's not going to be the same as a Tibetan Buddhist or the same as, the same as on the outside. <laughs> They're all going to be different. But when you scrape a little bit from the surface, when, when, just like uh, the Dalai Lama, he likes to joke about the yellow hats, right, his particular sect, he'd love to see a lot of this ritual and ceremony be just brushed aside because it gets in the way, right? If you have to dress a certain way and act a certain way, right, this is what we were talking about today. A lot of them thinks the ritual is important, and they want to add back in the chanting that they experienced in Peru, or they want to uh, add in, say, uh, indigenous um, um, rites because of the uh, the sacredness of the medicine and the sacredness of uh, the practice. But that belies the truth that I've said all week, all month, taking these courses. These therapists, be it psychedelic assisted or otherwise they all seem to fail with this idea of connection if they understand that it's connection that's missing then how don't you understand it's not the ceremony or the pomp and circumstance that is the protocol right same as rick doblin said it's not the psychedelics that are the medicine themselves it's the buying in that's the difference. And all of these therapists will explain this. Even Rick Doblin explains it that he had a hard time taking his psychedelics early on, but he saw tremendous potential, which kept him using it. So he had to work at this himself. And he even had to talk to one of the foremost scientists that studied LSD to help him mentor his way through this. And yet, to listen to them talk about this psychedelic therapy, they don't seem to understand that that same application of, of protocol needs to be placed for these patients. Right? If 30 years before, when, oh my God, it was the wild, wild west, how is it that if it was so long ago and it was so illegal and it was so obscure and so rare that you'd find someone that understood this, how is it that I hear of more people that had access to more medicine and more community, and more sharing, and more healing, then, then we heal or here today, right? I see far too often that these protocols, I, I can't say on that. So all I wanted to share today is uh, some of my insights, a bit of a muckraker when it comes to this stuff, but... Mm. Well, if you're listening, you either uh, want to strangle me for it or uh, you agree. So either way, I hope you're having a fabulous day. And um, yeah, I mean, I hope you understand uh, where I'm coming from here. 
Uh, long story short, the way I see it is these doctors need to realize that there isn't one avenue. We need to put all these protocols together and personalize them. So have a great day.